pray. Lord, give us uh, just a willingness to see life and history and the world the way you see it. Help us to hear and respond uh, to the scriptures this morning. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Our uh, many advantages have put us at a great disadvantage to appreciating this passage. Um, being a white middle class American, um, if that is your skin color and socioeconomic class, uh, in America, that has made it very difficult for you and I to see that Joel 3 is actually really, really good news. This picture of God gathering the nations of the earth and judging them. Uh, to a typical American, uh, sounds like very bad news about God. It sounds offensive. Um, God, God intends for you to hear this and for it to be good news for you. Why is it so hard? I think uh, the hard part about it is that unlike most of the Christians who have ever lived in the world, uh, we are a part of the dominant social and cultural class in our nation. Um, we have never experienced systemic, uh, governmental-initiated persecution and oppression. Now, I'm not saying our lives aren't hard. I'm not saying we don't have issues that mess with us. I'm not saying we, we haven't experienced spotty stuff, right? But generally, we interact with police officers and our military without fear for our lives. We've never been financially or physically persecuted for our faith. We've never known defeat in war. We've never been occupied by our enemies. So uh, not having that life experience shared with the people of Joel 3 and most of the people in history who have known Jesus makes it hard for us to appreciate that God gathering the wicked nations of the earth who have oppressed and destroyed his people to a place in the future where he will finally judge them and rescue his people. It makes that sound all real harsh, right? It makes it sound like God is not good, that this is somehow... Uh, something we should be ashamed of about God. We're going to see today um, that, in fact, even God's end-time justice is a result of his love. Even that part of God, that scary part, is a result of his deep, passionate love for his people. And it's going to really help us uh, because we do, even if we don't experience oppression and injustice, the daily reality of our lives in Christ, we live in a world full of it, and we watch it, and we hear about it on the news, and, we, and it's, it's very tempting to say, where is God in North Korea right now, you know? Uh, where is he in Somalia, where Christians are daily killed? This passage tells us where God is and what he's doing. He's going to fight for his people. And even a little closer to home, uh, we walk around in a world where we try to walk with Jesus, and... The guy, we have unbelievers around us who prosper, and we don't. We, 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 think, we think, how come how come these guys are living opposed to God, and stuff's going well for them, and here I am walking with Jesus, and I've got this, 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 and this, and this to deal with. This passage tells us where the end is going. It makes those things right. So we're going to see two things here. God roars against the nations, the enemies of his people, and that he's a refuge for his people. So let's, let's dive in. Look at, uh, look at uh, verse, verse 2. I will gather 
all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. So the nations in the Old Testament is shorthand for unbelievers opposed to God. So just we got we got we got to back up a little bit. Uh, in the Old Testament, you were generally either someone in the ethnic nation of Israel, all right, um, or you were a pagan nation opposed to Israel. So you either knew God through your country, okay? Uh, true faith was generally uh, divided along ethnic lines. So the nations here uh, in the Old Testament, as much like Jesus speaks about the world, like when Jesus says the world will hate you, and First John says the world is opposed to God. This world system that opposes God's purposes. Right? But there are uh, particular nations uh, here that have wronged God's people. Verse 4 says, Tyre and Sidon and Philistia. Just so you guys know, Tyre and Sidon were nations that loved commerce. They were really rich nations. They were coastal nations. Um, they were even allies of Israel at some point in time. But here, uh, they are taking part in enslaving God's people and selling them. They're making their money on selling God's people to others. Uh, Philistia is a longtime enemy of Israel. They were often at war. Uh, but just notice this passage we're about to go to and this great judgment is a just judgment. These nations have done wrong. Um, but also notice that uh, what is going to happen to Tyre and Sidon and all those places in Joel's day is actually pointing towards a day, uh, a future day, that Joel spends most of his time on. Look at, uh, look at verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Uh, verse 2, I will gather all the nations. Uh, verse 11, hasten and come, all you surrounding nations. So now we're beyond Tyre and Sidon way back in 600 B.C., okay? Now we are to a day when all of the nations are going to face God in judgment. Just notice, uh, if you were curious about verse 2, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, besides being a great baby name, okay? Jehoshaphat, just, just kidding, all right? Uh, besides being a great baby name, Jehoshaphat actually means the Lord has judged in Hebrew. So there's not an actual place we're talking about here. We're not going to, we don't need to go to, you know, the Middle East and find out where the Valley of Jehoshaphat is. It's just, a, it's a symbolic, okay? The name means the Lord has judged. It's called, it's the Valley of Judgment, all right? Um, so God is going to bring all the nations to this valley of judgment. This valley is uh, also called in verse 14, the valley of decision. Uh, a commentator I read said that who makes decisions in this valley? God does, not people. Um, so God is going to gather, or he's going to allow the nations to gather in this valley. What are they going to do? In verse 9, it says they are going to attempt to wage war on God and his people. If you notice, uh, in verse, verse 9 calls them to consecrate for war and to stir up their mighty men. Verse 10, uh, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. The idea there is they're going to take their agricultural tools and they're going to change them into weapons. Probably not really great weapons. This is a this describes what some people have called total war, when it's not just the military that is engaged in conflict, but the entire population. People who shouldn't be soldiers become soldiers for the sake of war. Um, and they are all gathered against God's people, all of these nations. And uh, verse 13, 14, 15, and 16 describe what's going to happen on that day, and it does so in very symbolic language. Uh, verse 13, actually, sorry, verse 12 tells us what's going to happen, that that God's going to sit like a king on his throne, okay? 
and judge the nations. Verse 13 describes that in very uh, vivid terms. Put in the sickle, the harvest is ripe. Go and go and tread, for the wine press is full, the vats overflow, their evil is great. It's a tough verse if you don't do agriculture. But uh, you guys probably know what a sickle is. Y'all seen the Grim Reaper on Halloween? Okay, he's got that giant uh, knife thing. That's a sickle. That actually is uh, comes from the Bible, where this uh, this sickling is uh, associated with end times judgment. So, anyways, uh, but the sickle back in the day. Uh, was a tool used to harvest grain. It was a blade used to harvest grain. Okay, and uh, a wine press was a um, was a kind of a, a cylinder type thing with holes in it, and you would put grapes in it and stomp on the grapes to get your juice to make wine with. All right, everybody, follow me so far. Okay, uh, but here, uh, what is being harvested with the sickle? The nations. Who who's in the wine press? The nations. You'll see that? The vats overflow for their evil is great. God treads upon the nations in the valley of judgment. Now, um, how do I know that's what it means? Um, because for some reason, the Apostle John loves to reference the book of Joel throughout the book of Revelation. Let me just give you a couple, okay? Three different times in Revelation, all of the nations of the earth gather to make war against Jesus and his people. Every single time you guys know what happens, I'm sure. Okay? Uh, in Revelation 14, uh, the Son of Man, picture of Jesus, okay? the Son of Man has a sickle and he harvests the earth. And right after that, the Son of Man treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God on the nations. So, the first thing we see here is that this is where all of human history is heading. This is where the world is going, to a day when all the nations will gather against God and his people. They will gather for war against him, and God will sit and judge them and rescue his people. That's where history is going. As uh, verse 16 says, the Lord roars from Zion like the Lion of Judah, and reality shakes and the nations are judged. So in a few minutes, we're going to talk about how, possibly how this could be good news. We're going to go there. Uh, but a lot of times to get uh, in the Christian faith to get the good news, you've got you to get the bad news first. Okay? Um, so we're going to, we're going to talk about a couple things just in our hearts and lives before we get to the good news. Uh, and here's, here's a, and I just want, I want you to promise me something uh, as, we, as we go in this first half of application. Um, I just want you to promise me for the next five to ten minutes, all right, you're going to attempt to put down uh, your self-defense mechanisms for a moment. Now, there are some things that we can just hear, like, hey, you need to go forgive that person who's mad at you, okay? That, that's relatively, like, straightforward from the scriptures, okay? But there are other things that are so set in us because of our culture and the way we've been raised that any time someone speaks against them, We've got some real easy self-defense mechanisms. Uh, I like to call it, uh, I did some middle schoolers a lot. This was easier for them. I call them uh, missile defense systems. So again, the United States, um, if someone launched an intercontinental ballistic missile in the United States, okay, the way we defend against that is we have our own missiles that we shoot at those missiles. Does that make sense? So that missile's coming this way, and we just, all right, if, if it works, all right? Uh, a lot of us, okay, a lot of us, though, a lot of us have those very same things in our hearts. Preachers are something I don't like, something that gets up in my grill, mm, I'm going to shoot that down. He's getting political, right? 
or or you know he oh he where, where's that in the scripture I, I don't know if, I don't know if I see that right so I just want to encourage you guys for the next five minutes really uh, to attempt or at least to be conscious of that going on in your heart because uh, one thing this passage asks us as Americans who have very much benefited from living in America who are very tempted to at the core of our hearts be patriots where do your allegiances really belong it according to your life and your values and the things you say and do who really has your allegiance does the the nation and kingdom of Jesus from every race and every nation and tribe that goes throughout history that primarily has been oppressed does, does, does he does his nation have your allegiance and your love or does America have your allegiance and love. And why, why does that passage ask us that question? <clears throat> because America is one of the nations. If America lasts until the end of days, it will be one of the nations gathered to make war against God and his people. Right? We need to flush this out for a second. Okay? You all see that? If, if the end of time, which Joel 3 says is going to happen, and if you read the book of Revelation, it's everywhere, okay? Right? If the end of time says... At the end of time, is going to be the nations of the earth gathering against God and his people to make war against them. America is one of those nations. It's going to be, unless we collapse before the end of time, which could happen. But uh, let me just explain this. You might think, well, Leland, like, what about our history? We were found on Christian values, right? Like, like come on. Seriously? Um, again, I, I enjoy living in America. Um, but let me, you guys know what a jack-in-the-box is? Okay. Y'all seen that scene in Elf? Yeah. Okay. So just imagine, um, what a horrible toy, right? Like those poor children. Like who invented those? Anyways, uh, but imagine, all right, that you're four years old and your terrible uncle buys you a Jack in the Box for Christmas, and you don't know what it is. Okay. How do you feel the first few times you're turning the crank? kind of cool. You know, you're like, oh, this is, a, this is kind of a fun toy, you know? And you don't know what's going to happen in a second. Is, you know, your world's going to explode, right? That is what it is like to live in a nation of the earth that currently is very nice to you. That's, that's what's going on right now. We're just turning the crank. The music's playing. It's really nice. And one day, right, whether that's coming soon or it's very far in the future, one day... America's true colors will come out. The jack will be out of the box. And so, um, I'm not saying that we become anti-patriots, that we withdraw from our culture and our nation, but I am saying that we do need to understand it and beware of it. You know, when... uh, when God's people were exiled and sent to Babylon, one of the worst places in the world, one of the most evil places in the world, he told them to seek the welfare of the city I'm sending you to. We should, we should labor for the good of America. We should love our nation, and we should seek to bless it. But we should not give it our allegiance. We should not let our lives and our, and our views and how we think and how we live and the values that drive us primarily be determined by the country we were raised in. You might be asking, uh, well, Leland, like, give me, give me like a concrete example. Let me, let me just see this real quick. Let me, like, speak, speak to, speak, speak practically. 
You asked for it, okay? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'll just say there's a million ways in which this can apply. This applies to the way you view your money. Do you view your money more like a Christian visa or like an American visa, right? Do you view your, your dreams for your life like a Christian or like an American, right? Let me give you one that's real, uh, real controversial. Um, again, just be aware of your missile defense mechanisms, okay? But pretend with me for a moment, okay? Pretend with a moment that you are um, a black American or an African American, whatever, whatever is more appropriate for you to say, okay? Living in America in 2018, reading Joel 3. And you specifically read about how the enemies of God's people enslaved them, okay? And how God is going to avenge those people who enslaved his people, all right? You think about your grandma, okay, who lived in the Jim Crow South, where white people fat on her, and in, in, in the South, all right, among white evangelicals, right? Martin, Luther's, Martin Luther King Jr.'s approval rating, right, among white evangelicals 50 years ago, okay, was less than the approval rating for the Soviet Union dictator, right? We're 50 years away from that, guys. Not 250, okay? Two generations ago, people of our skin color unanimously, right? Okay, anyways, so that's, that's when your grandma lived, all right? And she told you all about her, her great-grandfather, who was a slave, worked to death on a plantation owned by white people. How does that change how you, uh, how you see Joel 3? Does that broaden your perspective a little bit? All of a sudden, the people going down to the Valley of Judgment have faces. They have white American faces. Now, um, if you, like me, have the same skin color as those historical oppressors, and you live just 50 years away from a day when almost every Christian, white Christian in America was agreed in their hatred and disapproval of Martin Luther King Jr., right? If you live in this day, right, a day that if you ask any black Christian, right, they would tell you racial injustice still exists, right? It's still very present. It's structurally and systemically present. doesn't matter if you personally have a prejudice, okay? Our nation runs on that. If that's you, like me, okay, and you see people participating in a Black Lives Matter march, and your first thought is, listen, all lives matter, okay? Listen, your allegiance primarily is to your white middle-class America. Now, that, that's hard. That's hard for me. That's where I was six months ago, okay? I was there. Black lives matter. No, all lives matter. Come on, man. But listen, if, you're, if your allegiance is primarily to Jesus and his people, when his people in our nation are telling us, listen, this exists, they're, the nation you love so much that has been so nice to you oppresses us, right? You have to listen. You have to be aware. And you have to work and labor at amending those things. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying feel guilty because you're white, okay? I, I don't want to perpetuate white guilt. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that if you deny these things and you oppose these realities, you might find yourself on the side of the oppressors. And you have to be aware of that. Your allegiance coming first to Jesus and his kingdom should radically get up in your grill about how you see life in the world in America. And 
how you see your money, and how you see your lifestyle, and how you see your relationships. Broadly applied, but right here in this passage, God takes the oppression of his people, even if those people don't look like you. He takes the oppression of his people very seriously. And we should too. Okay, so God avenges his people. He judges those who oppress his people. And we have to at least accept that our nation is among the nations heading to that place. But now we're going to see the good news. We're going to see why God judges the nations. Uh, There's this very typical kind of Western mindset. We're very much rule-oriented and law-oriented. And so when we think about God's judgment, primarily what we see in our heads is a judge behind, you know, up, up in his whatever podium, okay, with the law saying, you've broken it, justice has to be done. That's what we primarily see as Westerners, okay? Joel 3 is not like that at all. Joel 3, the reason for God's judgment in Joel 3 is his love for his people. Don't miss that. God judges the nations to deliver and to rescue and to bless his people. Even his judgment is a result of his love, his particular love for his people, his particular love for you. Look at uh, verse 1. Why is God gathering the nations? In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, the judgment is restorative for his people. Verse 16 says, The Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth quake. That is a frightening verse. But here's where it ends. The Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the people of Israel. So God judges so that he can be a refuge or a hiding place or a place of blessing for his people. Look at the result of God's judgment. Verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. Why does God judge the nations? So that his people will know him. So that his people will be holy. The the idea here is, is most Christians throughout history, they have lived their lives oppressed marginalized, right? Their whole lives have seemed to say, God's not for you, right? You're poor, the government's oppressing you, how can God be for you? And on this day, God reminds them, no, God's been for you the whole time. He makes it right. His, his judgment is, for the, is so that believers who live in Iran right now, or Somalia, North Korea, and their Christianity has cost them everything and made their lives a wreck. Those people will be vindicated the day of judgment. It will be for them. Um, Revelation 6 talks about what's going to happen right before the world ends, at least in my interpretation. We'll get there in the fall, you know. Um, But right before the end comes, there's this scene, and John says, Then I saw under God's altar the souls of all of his people who had been slain for the testimony of Jesus. So these are saints, okay, and this is a little tricky, okay, it's a little sidebar, okay. These are saints who have gone to heaven, okay, they're not resurrected in glory yet, but they're, they're in heaven. They're perfect, okay? 
They're, they're in God's presence, like Paul says in Philippians 1, to be apart from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? They're there. And here's what they say. O sovereign Lord, faithful and true, how long until you avenge our blood on our enemies? The perfect, perfected saints are saying that. Okay? Now again, it's uncomfortable, right? If you're a Westerner and you're like, you hear all the time, how can God be good and still send people to hell? Like, how's that possible? Here, Joel 3 says, how can God be good and not avenge all of the wrong done to his people through all the ages? How can you say that God loves his people if he won't fight for them? God's not a cold judge with his gavel here. He's a father who loves his children and who protects them and who fights for them. That is good news. It's also good news because of the destination this judgment brings God's people to. Look at verse 18. It's a very confusing verse. If you didn't live in Israel, it says, In that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, the hills shall flow with milk, and the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Uh, so notice, all right, we've got mountains that are dripping sweet wine and hills flowing with milk. The idea here, okay, if you lived in Joel's day, your job was generally one of two things, okay? You were a farmer or you were an animal tender, right? You either did, and you did that so you could live, all right? If you farmed, you farmed grapes, right? They would make wine, they would make juice, you'd make money off that, all right? You'd make grain, you'd, uh, you, you'd herd your cattle, they would make milk, you would live off of that, okay? These, these are all the necessities of life. These are the, the things that a, uh, a Jew would associate with prosperity. And notice, in that day, everything that symbolizes provision and prosperity overflows. You don't just have hills that have some wine and some, some productivity, they flow with it. Um, the Valley of Shittim is a very dry place. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water it. But finally, because of God's judgment at the end of time, finally, you and I, if we know Jesus, we walk with him. Finally, we will be in a place where every part of our lives prospers. Every aspect, every dimension of our lives is overflowing. We can say this is circumstantially, right? Prosperity, all that kind of stuff. Even more than that, the desires of your heart, your longing for joy and fellowship, those things that are central to your being, overflowing. God's going to bring us there. Through his judgment. Before we try to apply this, let's just back up for a second and just marvel at the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that at one point, everyone in this room, as the scriptures say, was, was walking among the nations. You were going headlong into destruction. You weren't even aware of it. And in, in that time, when you were a rebel against God, God chose to send his son, Jesus, live and die perfectly for your sins, and then, not only that, but to, to personally pick you and to call you to himself and to draw you to Christ. And since then, in the middle of all your stumblings, in the middle of all your sins, all your rejections of him, he continues to be gracious to you, and he's bringing all of history to this day when you will be vindicated and that you will have prosperity. Just think about that grace. It covers your life. And, uh, and from that place, just 
consider a new way to see the judgment of God. I'm not saying that we don't go to the lost people and tell them and plead with them to come to Christ. I'm not saying we get callous against unbelievers, but I am saying we we need to stop apologizing that God judges the wicked. We We need to back up from that. We need to realize that God's love is multifaceted. It's not this all-encompassing, embracing of all things kind of love. It's a particular, passionate love for his people that fights for them. It's good at its core. But more than that, um, if you are in a place right now when you are doubting that God actually cares about you, you're looking around, you're watching other people do great in their lives, Things are going well for them. They're not really that holy, right? You're seeing unbelievers prosper around you, and you feel like your life's a mess. Know that one day God will make it right. He will vindicate you. Faithfully wait for him. Maybe you've been wronged. Maybe somebody has really sinned against you, and they can just continue on with life, and they're fine, and you are in shambles. Your, your biggest temptation is to avenge yourself, to hate that person in your heart, to treat them poorly. This passage tells us, like Romans 12 does, vengeance belongs to God. Never repay evil for evil. Take everything wrong done to you will be paid for. It's either going to be paid for by the blood of Jesus or it's going to be paid for at, this, at, at the end of days. You know the Sermon on the Mount when it says, when someone slaps you, turn the other cheek, right? Be meek. Don't assert your rights. Give to people who, uh, who need it. That, that those teachings are just so counter to everything that our inclinations are. This passage gives those things roots. Everything wrong will be made right one day. Forgive that person. Stop insisting on having your way in life. Finally, if you are embattled, feel despised, rejected, just know one day you're going to win. You're stuck in sin, right? You cannot stop. You just feel like it grips you, okay? Get some help from friends. But one day, you will win. Your enemies will be defeated. You will finally get over your demons, as I like to say. It's kind of like, there's a story in the scriptures in the Old Testament. Book of Exodus, God, uh, God delivers his people from Egypt. And they come out of Egypt. And they get to the Red Sea, okay? And uh, Pharaoh decides, okay, I changed my mind. He brings his armies out to destroy them. And uh, and Moses and the people are freaking out. Moses is freaking out. Everybody's freaking out. They're like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe God just brought us here to kill us, okay? And here's what God says to them. He says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you. And you only have to be silent. If you're a Christian, know this and all the stuff you have going on in your life. The Lord will fight for you. Let's pray. Just thank you that for us, even the scary things are sweet. That even things that should make us tremble and be sober-minded, even those things are sweet for us because of the blood of Jesus. I pray that uh, we just walk out of here today thankful for that and willing to change in light of that. 
I pray that in Jesus' name.